You're listening to. And hey, welcome to the Good Pop Culture Club episode 52. My name is Marvin Yue, and joining me to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days, we have our professional culture editor, Hong Wen. Hi. And um, our resident self-proclaimed professional Asian American just who is not joining us this week. Um, it's just me and Han because she is finally taking her white girl sabbatical. And I don't <laughs> know where she is. Is she swimming the, with the otters or I don't know? No, no, not yet. She will do that at some point. But she <laughs> said that she is hiking in the Narrows and doing the Angels Flight and all that type of stuff. So basically, right. we just don't need her to do a selfie in a scary place. That's all. <laughs> Man, I really would like to take just like a break from the world. Yeah, it's been a weird weirdly difficult week or at least even just day it's um, 420 it's 420 oh. and i got my first uh, vaccine hey. today so how yeah, are you feeling it, I, we were debating before starting this <laughs> podcast like han are you feeling all right are you gonna pass out in the middle because we can we can just take the week off just as in here yeah i mean <laughs> look any excuse would have been great i i do have to say i'm I don't want to say this because it's such a privileged thing to say, but like I'm looking forward to my second vaccine when I can probably take a day off for being sick um, because my work my work has been kind of overwhelming me. So I'm looking forward to that because I need to actually set an actual vacation, but I have a very big project right now that I can't leave behind. So if I am forced to take a day off, I will. <laughs> but yeah, so today... All uh, all I'm getting is the sore arm, but I'm also getting um, a lot of nausea, like over and over. Um, so as long as I'm eating or drinking, I'm okay, which just means I'm like very full and bloated. But when I stop is when I start feeling the nausea. <laughs> so I'm sipping tea. So you're saying the Moderna vaccine is telling you, don't stop working. It, it, what it is, it's it's saying, hey, it's 420, even though you didn't like smoke out, like we're going to give you the munchies anyway. So. <laughs> Oh, I'm happy for you. Um, I've had my second shot already, and my symptoms were actually pretty mild. I was, I was kind of lucky. You know, yeah, I think you were lucky, and I, I think Jess also said hers was okay. But like, it, it's been tearing a hole through my um coworkers. Like every single person, <laughs> the second dose, like took them out more than one day, and then my friend, the first dose, took her out a couple of days. So that's why I was like, really, I've been following all the advice, hydrating. Um, someone said eat a donut. I didn't eat a donut, but I ate something sweet this morning, which is not usual for, for me. <laughs> and then I've been doing wind blows with my arm. And that's actually been helping the most, like as far as like my arm. Yeah. Um, so my partner and I are both vaccinated um, fully. We've done our two weeks. And so we've been able to go out the last weekend. And let me tell you, it's still stressful because I'm like, my head is on a swivel judging mm -hmm. everybody walking by me like are you do you look trustworthy and all the people who aren't wearing masks and aren't being careful are exactly who you think they are yep <laughs> i i'm just so angry um all the time <laughs> but and i think everyone's like do you remember last year at this point everyone was like so careful about washing hands mm -hmm. and like saying oh we'll never go back to the way we were oh, guess yeah, what no. we were back to the way we were because oh, yeah. there were literally two people in front of me in the bathroom who didn't even soap up when they were what? See, that is ridiculous. Like I, I kind of figured it was a pipe dream to expect people not to want to shake hands and hug anymore. Like I was like, they're not gonna bow because that's too Asian. <laughs> but come on, people, wash your fucking hands. Sorry. <laughs> <It was> just... <sighs> <sighs> well, anyway, anyways, 
that's the new stress now. Not wondering who's infected, but who's like being irresponsible. Right. Just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you uh, have a free pass. And especially if you're between vaccines, you definitely <laughs> should uh, get both. Um, but it doesn't mean that like you can't maybe carry it to someone else, all that yeah. other stuff. So yeah, still be careful. Yeah. Well, I know it's also a busy week for you because it is Oscars week. This weekend is the, I don't know, what 90 something Academy Award. Yeah. The numbers don't mean anything to me anymore, but it's, it's since it's such a weird Oscars year, um, I'll just be curious to see like how few people watch it. But, you know, it like since we've been covering quite a few films through the uh, for the Oscars, I really, you know, I, I, I feel sad that this is a lower year for viewership. But at the same time, I'm hoping that that means people are paying more attention to the ones that are getting some attention. It's strange because I feel like even though this past year, people have not watched as many movies. I've probably seen more Oscar films because of this podcast than any other year. Yeah, yeah. I think the podcast helps us. But then also, like like I was saying, like, you know, we haven't even done a lot of Oscars coverage on my site just because I feel like everyone kind of knows what the big Oscar movies are. There aren't like 30, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. it's it kind of got narrowed down pretty quickly because there aren't that many. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm happy that we're like spotlighting a few other ones that, you know, maybe people hadn't heard of. Yeah. Speaking of spotlighting Oscar movies um, on this episode, Han and I were talking about the Oscar nominated film, The White Tiger, um, that's available now on Netflix. Um, but before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through this week. Han, tell me what's popping. All right. So I just started reading this book because, as um, Marvin knows, I was having issues with my NetGalley uh, advanced reading copy downloading, but I finally <laughs> got it. Um, so I'm only partway through, but it's fantastic. It is Crying in H Mart. Um, it's a new memoir yeah. by Mich- uh, Michelle I- Zahner. This is the Zahner. Japanese Breakfast. Yes. Lady, Japanese right? Breakfast is the. Uh, is the artist name in the artist name for Michelle Zahner. I think that's how you say her last name. Um, and she is actually half Korean. So of those people kind of confused about what H Mart and Japanese breakfast have to do with each other. <laughs> that's why. Um, this was the, a yeah. New Yorker article, right? Or was it a New Correct. York magazine? No, you are right. New Yorker did an article called Crying in H Mart in 2018. So it's basically that was the instigating article that is now this memoir is um, a bunch of chapters kind of like along the same vein um, that make sort of like an just like with an album, like each of the tracks, you know, has a different title and might have a a different theme, but all together, it, it comes together in some sort right. of things. It's a yeah. memoir, is what you're saying? <laughs> it's a food memoir. And so the first chapter, I'm sure, is actually very similar. I haven't compared it to the New Yorker article, but it's beautifully written. And just the love that she gives to H Mart, because basically her mother died of cancer. And so she says she goes to H Mart um, to feel closer to her mother, because that's where like most of her memories are like her very tangible memories are and so when she gives the love to the food court i'm just like this is exactly right because as any asian person knows who's gone to like an h mart or any of those places like a an asian mall the food court is legit (laughs) this is not where you get like crappy versions of food It, it is like bustling you can get like a zillion different types of foods and it's it's a really great like cross-section of personalities and so she goes over the foods but also all the different types of people there like 
there's the white guy who, who who's bringing his family there. Maybe he's a GI. Who knows? You know, and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's she has a um she. She is a musician, but she also has her first love was writing. And you can tell that, um, she, like I said, it's beautifully written her. I I can only hope that I could like write this well. Um, and <laughs> it, it, it's, it makes you it makes you cry, but also makes you crave food, um, makes you think about your mom and your grandma and just family. Um, she is also half white. So she talks a lot about identity and kind of like finding that sort of in between place. and. Um, Ultimately, she says, she says, like, her identity is an artist. It's not Korean. It's not American, you know. Um, but, yeah, I highly recommend it. I have not finished it yet, but I already I've resolved to buy a couple, like, hard copies um, for my mom and my friend who is Korean. Yeah. Um, I've been reading some memoirs for Books and Bulba, my, my book club podcast, and a couple written by, like, poets and artists. And those are always the ones that have, like, that lyrical feel and the, just the way that people can weave personal stories into like beautiful like I mean yeah. like landscapes artscapes it's amazing because like I'm like I can I can never write like this yeah I I I you can definitely tell that she's a musician lyricist um but you know there are a few people like the food memoir is a unique type of memoir I think because they often not only play off of food culture and our mem- you know our memories and associations with it but they also play with the like sense sensory you know mm-hmm. um indicators and i think that is what makes it so interesting because food evokes like memories and associations with it but to describe it in words and have the same reaction <laughs> i think it's fascinating it's kind of like you know when you watch a, a food tv show and you're like you can't smell it you can't taste it and yet at the same time you are totally you know into it because the way they present it, you know, like you eat with your eyes first. That's what they say. Yeah. So it's very similar to that. I think that's why I find food TV very effective. Um, along those lines, <laughs> what's popping with you? Um, yeah. So um, before we get to our now weekly Go Asian segment to talk about Top Chef, um, I did want to talk about a game that I've been playing. Um, so Nintendo just dropped a bunch of indie games onto it's um Switch Store because they had a indie, I think an indie showcase um Ooh. last week. And I picked up a game called Say No More. Um, and that's Say No More. Um, it's a game by Studio Fitzbin. It's like, about 15 bucks on the Switch store, but it's a comedy game. So the whole point of the game, the, like the game revolves around one gag, and that gag is um so the setup is you are an intern working for a new company. And at first, you're kind of like a pushover. You have a roommate who says, oh, now that you have a job, you can pay rent this month, right? And you go to work and your supervisor steals your lunch. And so like the setup is on your desk, you listen to this motivational cassette tape that teaches you how to say no. And so from then on, it becomes like a, it's not even a shooter. It's kind of like an on rails type of thing where people ask you things and you say no. And then you can set the language different you know, you can say no in German and Spanish and Chinese and <laughs> Japanese. And so it's like this one gag that, you know, goes on for like, I think the games are probably like two, three hours long, if that. Um, I'm on chapter three right now. But uh, yeah, it's a fun little game. Um, If you're looking for like a quick, you know, indie experience on the Switch, I think it's also on Steam. Um, Check it out. It's really funny. <laughs> I, I, I'm, even though you, 
you repeated it the second time. I still didn't understand what you meant by say no more until you <laughs> described it. So now I understand this is uh, this is good for all those people who need to be more assertive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is the opposite of uh, Shonda Rhimes, uh, The Year of Yes. It's, it's about saying no. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah that sounds fun yeah and um i mean so as the game goes on you learn different ways to say no like the cold no the heated no and then <laughs> there's also certain enemies where you have to set up the no so like you have to like do a slow clap and then say no or you laugh at them <laughs> to like throw them off and then say no so it's just it's like the power fantasy you know if you've ever worked at a shitty office job you just want to tell everyone off this is that yes. power fantasy right i think it's funny that it's also a comedy game i don't think i've encountered that like games that happen to have funny things in them sure but oh there's like seem... there's a whole genre of these a really ah. good one that came out a couple years ago called jazz punk by adult swim games and adult swim has a game division that does a lot of these comedy games that game is pretty much it's like um like a leslie nielsen film like national Lampoon, <laughs> if they made a video game just like just the whole entire game is just different gags and setups and like skits all right, sold. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Surely you can't be serious. That's what I should actually say. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, yeah, check it out. Um, I, I think it's fun. It's good to sing in a couple hours and just just brings a little joy into your life. Ooh, that's um, fun. Yeah. Now. Yeah, and uh, we continue our recap of season eighteen of Top Chef, Top Chef Portland, with another episode where the Asians dominated. So. Um, go asian is our pseudo podcast where we follow the asians on top chef and um until until they've all been eliminated or one of them wins so for the quick fire they did a gelato challenge um sponsored by talenti which um i guess is a gelato brand i haven't had talenti before they were challenged to make uh layered desserts so they all made parfaits or it looked like parfaits to me like mcflurries and the winner was Avishar, who won with a Buckeye bonbon with brown butter and liquid graham cracker. Yeah, and I think it was the mix of textures that really kind of set him over the top because everyone, like you were saying, kind of did a parfait. <laughs> so he he took a, a risk. And he's also our, you know, uh, biochemical, you know, king as far as like being able to figure out different ways to combine ingredients and and use them so i i i want to say that he was a shoe in but that's there's never a guarantee on top chef so that i'm always happy when he's able to pull it out yeah i feel like um i'm always skeptical with the editing because i know what they're trying to do but i'm glad that abishar got his win he got his ten thousand dollar reward and you know kept the asian domination going on top chef which is why we watched the show um and then for the elimination challenge they had a african um cuisine challenge which is interesting so i think it was this the first time they've done something like this um i think specifically pan-african is the first time when we went to i believe it was i think we've had various contestants who have had african backgrounds mm. uh in cooking and so like when we went to kentucky i believe we had some um i forgot the name of it it's Gullah Geechee or something like that where right yeah yeah yes. the um like the local like the, the local cuisine that yeah. has african roots in it and so that's definitely one aspect um but i think the reason why they call this pan-african is they had several examples of African influenced foods, including like Haitian, um, West African, uh, stuff like that. And so it was in in a way 
celebrating that, but also showing the chefs um, of different backgrounds that they have been also influenced by it. Like, you know, a Southern chef who realized like that's tastes like hush puppies or whatever to me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's yeah. not get into why Southern food has roots in African cuisine. <laughs> I mean, we know why. And, and that's why it's like when you talk about like greens, I'm just like, that's completely Southern um, and African, African, you know, well, uh, African diaspora, let's say, <laughs> influenced. So, and spice and stuff. I did enjoy, yeah. or, or not, I don't know what I did. I probably rolled my eyes at all the, um, let's say, white people who couldn't, quote unquote, take spices during this challenge. Yeah, because I'm always, I mean, I hate to be that person. Like, I'm not that smug when it comes to spice because I, I bet, you know, back in the day, I could probably do spice more. And now I'm just like, yeah, mild, uh, medium is good. You know, <laughs> so, but at the same time, um, because I also have friends who absolutely cannot do any spice. They are the blandest of the bland. Like even black pepper can be a deal for them. Oh, and wow. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, you know what? You can have all the bland foods off my plate and I can eat all the spicy foods. Um, so that's how I see it. But yeah, it, I have to say if you are a chef and you can't take spicy food. And I again, I don't mean like fiery hot. Like I think that there is a, a line you cross where it becomes more heat than flavor. But, like, come on, people. I ha- have a feeling this wasn't that spicy. I mean, I feel like, yeah. I mean, let's face it. I- I'm being a little smug, but. <laughs> Sometimes when we- people call things spicy, it just means it has flavor. That's what I've noticed. Um, it-, it might have a tiny bit of heat, but it's not, like, spicy. Like, I need five glasses of water and dairy yeah. and a Tums. You know, nothing like that. Like, it- that's ridiculous, but. It goes back to what I was saying before. It's always the people you expect, which is kind of sad sometimes. Like, I don't want my stereotypes to be true, but sometimes they are. Yeah, and it also depends. Like, um, my my best friend, she's Korean. She's married to a British guy. And so when they lived in New York, their Indian delivery service would all, would make a mark by their name because they realized he was British. And so they realized that he could take heat. Because, of course, the colonialism and so British people like their Indian foods and a good curry. So it it was one of those things where like they got legit spicy food for them. <laughs> but yeah, I normally you would see a pasty tall, you know, British dude and not you know, expect him to eat it. So, yeah, it's 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 one of those like where it's however you grew up. Yeah, um, it's not innate. You can teach yourself to eat spice, but you have to ex- uh, like expose yourself to it. So, yeah. And also be willing to pay the price. Yeah. And, I, you know, so but having said that, I thought that was interesting because it's not just, you know, like Caucasian white cuisine that doesn't do as much spice. They pointed out that Shota, you know, Japanese cuisine doesn't have a lot of spice spice. Like wasabi is not really spice. It kind of goes away. And so like when if you've ever had a Japanese curry, you realize it's kind of more sweet than mm-hmm. spicy. And so he actually said that when he was making his uh, his take on the African cuisine that um, he tried using a um, made a sort of a spicy yuzu sauce. And he wasn't sure he, if he got the balance right because he doesn't work with spice a lot. Um, fortunately, it paid off for him and he got a lot of compliments on it. So well, that's what happens when you have a skilled culinary master like Shoro Nakajima <laughs> um, yeah and on this challenge um, Don the um, West African specialist ended up winning which yes, good for good. her like she, she's been struggling throughout the competition and it just proves that when she brings it she brings it 
but the other two people on the top with her was Jamie and Shoda, um, which, you know, I'm just glad because as a longtime Top Chef watcher and especially a longtime Asian Top Chef fan, like supporter, it's always like there's always one or two that's just like, you know, the early episodes is all about baseline skills, right? The people that go home are usually the ones with like either they don't have the technical skills to keep up or they make like really basic mistakes. And there's always like that fear that one of the Asians this year is going to be one of those. But I'm really glad that all three that we have this year, like baseline have the potential to go far in this season. Yeah, I have to say every single one of them has unique skills and sort of palettes that intrigue me. Like I I never really know what I'm going to get. Like, of course, Jamie... I'm expecting some Vietnamese um, influenced food, but she surprises me too with she mixes her Vietnamese cuisine with other things often. Um, and so, and they always sound delicious. Now, probably Shota's like Japanese inspired stuff is like more my taste. Um, <laughs> it also is also elegantly plated and created, but Avishar, like he totally you know like breaks the rules and m- intrigues me <laughs> like whatever his food is i'm like i don't know what it is but it seems like it's doing you know whatever he's doing is working yeah uh, yeah i'm excited i actually went and looked up the beat bobby flay episode that shoda was in where bobby flay challenges him to a tempura contest and gets his ass kicked which was amazing oh i guess i'm gonna have to look that up because also tempura like scares me i just figure like that batter is gonna fall off if i ever try to make it Oh, yeah, I can. I, it's an I, art, I have to say, because I rarely actually order tempura unless it's a really good restaurant because I am I know inevitably I'm just going to be disappointed. I'm just so, not good uh, at frying stuff. Like, I, I, I'm just always worried I'm using too much oil oh, yeah. or I'm like, yeah. It's... I also just don't fry things on my own. You're <laughs> right. Like, I have an air fryer and that's close as I get and I know yeah. that's not really frying. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep monitoring our favorite Asians on Top Chef um, going forward. Hopefully next week they um, maintain their dominance. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing them shine throughout the season. Um, but with that, um, that'll do it for this week's edition of What's Poppin'. When we come back, we're talking about the White Tiger, nominated for Best Adaptive Screenplay in this year's Oscars. Stick around. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. This week, we finish our 2021 Oscars catch-up with The White Tiger. Um, the White Tiger is a 2021 drama film directed by Raman Barani, um, starring Adarsh Gaurav um, in his first leading role, um, Priyanka Chopra and Rajkumar Rao, co-produced by Priyanka Chopra and Ava DuVernay. Um, the film follows the story of Bahram, and his rise from poverty in India's underclass through his intelligence, cunning, and wit. Um, based on the Man Booker Prize winning novel of the same name by Arvind Adiga, it's nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for this weekend's Academy Awards and is available to stream on Netflix. Um, Han, what are your thoughts on The White Tiger? Okay, first of all, is Priyanka Chopra Jonas? 
<laughs> no, but I, I mean, I kid, but also not uh, because I, you know, I haven't really seen her in a, a big role like this, even though she is not the lead. She's the supporting role, but she has a great role um, because I think in the, in some ways it plays with uh, the idea is that, you know, she is an Indian born American who, you know, marries and then comes back to India and now is dealing with this main character and his fam and her, fa- you know, her married family, yeah. her in-laws. And um and it's and it really shows like the how like for her she's split between those two worlds because her values are definitely more about equality and um and so the lead uh Baram uh he it's fascinating because we talk about caste here in America like as if we know anything what that means in India like we kind of say oh uh, we we know that it's like totally unfair and there's low and high and all this other stuff but like it's going away but no not really um and even though this is sent it set in like 2007 2010 um things haven't changed that much so it's fascinating i found this completely fascinating because of the way this guy he's he's completely some uh, sympathetic you know he's he's born to a lower caste he has ambitions you know, uh, according to his cast, you know, which is to work for a more prestigious family. But then as he goes along, he finds out more and more and more that like, hey, I've been brainwashed to stay in my lane. And so he starts feeling more outraged and wanting to, you know, like equal equalize it. And so how he does it and to what extent he does, it's just fascinating because he even makes fun of the um, of uh Oh my God! What's it called? Uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Because he's like, there is no game show that's going to get me out of this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be like. Yeah, there's something. There's definitely something about like the last, like this past few years. Um, like the trend for Oscar movies has been like eat the rich movies, right? We had Parasite. Was that last year? Parasite was. was... It, it was only last year that Parasite oh, wow. won Best Oscar, Best Picture. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, you know, this one, you know, this one, uh, this film is definitely um, has similar themes right? about class, about the service class and the haves and the haves nots. No watching. I also thought about Knives Out and that movie's um, commentary on class as well, um, because the thing with this film is it takes place in India. So as viewers in America, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's because it's happening over there. Like, there's mm-hmm. totally inequality there. It's a developing country, so you know um, they're less civilized out there. But then you, you really take a look at the themes, and they, they even mention this in the film, like how is it different than what we're experiencing now? The end game of capitalism is this like stratification of classes, right? Of the the class with the money and the class meant to be the labor, like be the service. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those things that just because we don't call it the same thing doesn't mean that they're not very <laughs> similar. And we just are maybe not as upfront about it. Uh, it I mean, I guess it's the same thing there. Who, who tells the stories there? Um, who's making the movies? And if they're the ones who are like, you know, rich Bollywood, rich Hollywood <laughs> telling those stories, then we haven't been seeing this side. Um, and again, like I said, this is set like about a decade ago. It doesn't necessarily change things that much. Um, and like you were saying, well, basically Knives Out and like Parasite are like the same film. <laughs> a lot of people have compared them. Um, but but I, I like that this is also Eating the Rich, but 
fascinatingly, this shows that this movie hasn't been watched by that many people in America because there's also the line of he's saying, hey, the white white people are going out. It's now the time for the yellow and the brown man. (laughs) It's just like straight out says that. And so I'm just like, whoa, that is crazy to sort of declare that, especially after I have watched, you know, Exterminate All the Brutes, which is all about the opposite, you know, which is like the white man is going to like rule the world. And so it's time (laughs) for the brown and the yellow man and the rest of them to go away. So it's, it's just fascinating. And it's, and it's one of those films that, it's not in your, while you're watching it it doesn't necessarily feel radical but i think it's also just it's it's sneakily so i think um it really does put you know put to question how we play our roles and don't question what they are and even when Bahram starts to question his role he still doesn't break out of it he still has to like deprogram himself which is fascinating to see um, and talking it through. Uh, I think the device of the movie is also fascinating because we find out his story as sort of like a flashback story that he's telling because he's writing an email to the Chinese premiere. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think this is the way that the book was yeah. structured. So, um, you know, this is how they adapted it. And, you know, if, if I had one criticism of the film, it's that, I feel like the middle kind of like the him coming to his own like kind of awareness of his place in society takes a while. Um, like I kind of wish it moved a little faster. Maybe like maybe they could have cut like maybe 10 or 15 minutes from the film and getting to the climax because they keep hitting that there's this break. And, you know, um, the break is the most exciting part for these films is like when when the dam breaks and, you know, um, in this case, there's a murder. Right. It wasn't until after I finished the film that I realized that the break isn't really the point. The point is the fact that it took him this long to come to that point. Yeah, I mean, right? it, it the the movie starts in media's rest. And so there's a lot of action. And then all of a sudden it like flashes back also. And then you're just like, wait, wait. So you have that <laughs> in the back of your mind that you're going to go to this sort of climactic point. Um, but even then, that's not it. There's something else that happens. So, yeah, it it. I think it really does show. So it was an artistic choice for sure to go throughout that much of his story of him in service and him eventually realizing that, you know, my life isn't right. And I can't, you know, do right even by my family if I mean by myself, if I'm worrying about my family the whole time. So he has to make decisions about that. Um, I, I It makes sense that it had to take that long. Maybe from a storytelling perspective, it wasn't as fun to watch that way. But, I mean, I did find the whole movie still fascinating. Um, trying to figure out, like, you know, you do the same thing when you read or watch a historical piece. Like, would I have been the person who would have been the radical and broken out and been outspoken? Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe I would have been sold off into marriage or whatever if I were born a century yeah. ago. Yeah, I think the film does a good job portraying Barham as someone who has the wits and the cunning and the ambition, right? Like even, mm-hmm. you know, when it flashback, flashes back to him as a child, he was always a gifted child. He just wasn't given the opportunity because of his family, his situation, because of how the society in like India forces you to be a certain way. Like it cuts off your opportunities. There's a lot of talk about yeah, your destiny, your your cast is your destiny. 
and your mm-hmm. destiny can only go so far. So you should be grateful for what you have, um, which is counter to like this encroachment of capitalism into India, where there is obviously like a ruling class and like a class of like mobility that's coming that, but it's only accessible to people with means. Yeah, I. You know what? Uh, along those lines, I also appreciated their portrayal of one of his uh, employers, Ashok, um, who is maybe about his age, maybe a little bit older, um, but he's like the son of the rich guy. He's driving. He's a driver for yeah. this family. And the thing is, like, Ashok is kind of a generally nice dude. Like he American educated. Like he kind of has yeah. that, that those mixed values. Right. He's mixed values, but he's also a dude. And that means a lot different, you know, uh, when it comes to between him and his wife, who is Priyanka Choka. So she's she's pinky, which is Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Come on. Priyanka uh, (laughs) Chopra Jonas. And her character's name is Pinky, which, by the way, is a nickname for Priyanka. Um, And that was. Yes. uh, As. as, As my reading of my YA romances has has taught me when I, uh, what was it? Uh, 10 Things I Hate About Pinky. Her name is actually Priyanka. So (laughs) anyway, that's what I I learned. (laughs) However, this character actually happened to be Pinky in the book too. So it's not like they changed it for her. Yeah. I mean, we touched upon um, Priyanka Chopra Jonas's (laughs) Pinky um, earlier in, in our discussion, but I thought that that dynamic was the most fascinating to me because, like, I guess her character is the most, like, the most we get from, like, an American perspective, perspective right? Yeah. And it's important because that's how we're viewing the the film. To, at least that's how I view the film is through the lens of American values. And, but also got you thinking, like, and, and, and this is where, like, the Knives Out um, kind of vibes came in, which is, like, here are these people who obviously want to be on the right side of history, right? Want to be good and just and, um, you know, believe in equality and treating people with respect. But when the chips are down, they protect themselves. Yeah. Right. She, she makes kind of a half-hearted effort to do what she thinks is right. But of course, she's also going against her husband and going against his family. So in the end, she's kind of rendered powerless. Um, and then when it comes to her husband, Ashok, he has a fascinating uh, relationship which with Balram because it's on one hand, it's like, I'm sure what a lot of people used to say about the masters and then slave people on plantations, like, no, he's like family. He's my friend. You know, they raised my kids. I love my nanny, you know, that type of stuff. <laughs> but then as soon as uh, they, um, something's wrong, then they'd like slap him and they're like, I don't want that. You know, so it's it's one of those where it's like kind of like a child like you're only my friend as long as i like find you useful um it's 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 horrible to see and yet so real that i i he's a character that i didn't love but at the same time i very much appreciated that they created this character and um had i i would say that about all the characters like none of them are faultless but I so appreciate how that they were drawn and also just executed. It was great. Yeah, and I feel like films like these, you can call them international films, but they are, I mean, let's face it, like the world government now is capitalism, right? Like it's not an isolated thing. It's not an American thing. It's not just a a Western thing, but like the effects of the gap between 
the rich and the poor is a global problem. You know, we see it, we see it portrayed here in India and it's ex- most exasperated because this is a country that got colonized in more ways than one. And then like, but still have this like distinct already class-based system that you add this upon. But he also like, they make it a point throughout the film to say there used to be a bunch of classes or castes in India that, um, that dictates what you can be. Now there's only two rich yeah. and poor and which is the case for everywhere right yeah it's it's fascinating because they say that but they're like but yeah which cast are you and then he says what the cast is and they're like is that low or high <laughs> and then like <laughs> they still want you to define it for him them and which is fascinating because it's also like what's he gonna say you know like he's driving for them so well, i mean how, how is it different than like you know in the states we ask right. oh, what school did you go to yeah, where did no, you grow uh, up? You know, like, it, are you from well, the city? Are you from the burbs? Are you from? Like, yeah, what? all of all of that stuff. It's like, well, it's also again, why are you asking this when it is your driver? Because you've <laughs> already sort of like you're putting them in their place. That's what it is. Um, when you're asking such a question, I feel like you're you're kind of already just pointing it out to them. Um, that I think lowly of you, but I'm going to make you say it. So it's like it's I mean, a power play. I mean, you know, I also watched the first episode of Exterminate All the Brutes and, you know, like it's human nature, I guess, that to want to feel superior to other people and to, you know, treat others as trash, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's something about our psychology or something about the way that society makes us think is like we can't win unless other people lose. Yeah, I think it's a good argument that exterminate all the brutes makes, which I would like to think I do not, you know, ascribe to. But basically, like, if you say, you know, if you think well of yourself because you've succeeded and done all these things, it means that other people have not necessarily and that you have, you know, sort of stepped on their backs in order to, you know, in order for you to rise, they had to stay low. But that's also in a system where class is at play. So if there was no class for real, your success necessarily wouldn't mean someone else is down. But because we do have a class system, um, and in India there is still like caste system at work, then yes, if you are successful, that does mean other people uh, are being harmed. So uh, that is exactly what colonialism is. Is Yeah, you're using other people. <laughs> so um, it, it it is fascinating. Like, I I would love it if someone would do, I mean, we don't see it here, but I really would love someone to like really point it out in a more pointed way. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, going back to films like Knives Out and even like, you know, watching films about Regency era Britain or even like there's <laughs> still a service class, right? There's still a yeah. class like there are still maids and nannies. There are still people who are only able to have certain lifestyles because other people are doing everything for them. Yeah. Right. They're not necessarily being slaughtered though. Um, hopefully. But uh <laughs> because that is something that is expressed in this film is that the lower classes stay low because they are too afraid that if they do step outside of their lane that their whole families uh get retribution. And because no one's gonna care about them if that happens. So I mean, uh, 
we see yeah. that kind of violence. We do. Yes, we do. You You're know? right. <laughs> we actually, Here too, right? We've actually just seen that. Like, we had a whole trial about that. So, yeah. Um, it's just on a different scale. I think it's, uh, it's also the people who we supposedly, you know, value or don't in the society. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it was, I thought, of just a great film. I really enjoyed it. And I'm glad I ended up seeing it because... You know, I had someone review it. They said it was good, but I didn't bother watching it until it was got it got nominated. So I'm happy that I checked it out. I I really found it great. Like, and the yeah. acting was fantastic. I was actually expecting it to be like a Scarface type deal, where it's someone like creating a crime empire. And no, it's just some dude. I mean, there is a crime or crimes being done, um, but he just wanted to make an Uber. Right? Yeah, I mean, no one is blameless. Like, yeah, I like the Uber, his his, his sort of <laughs> entrepreneurship. Like, the idea of entrepreneurship is is fascinating in this movie because it's every single aspect that you can think of. Is it money? Is it class? Where are you? How are you rising? Uh, but yes, he wants to create an Uber. <laughs> yeah, I will say, driving in India seems like I I can I can never do that. Oh, I would definitely <laughs> not. But I also I. I I cannot compare it for real, but I do remember in Vietnam uh, riding in a car the very first time I actually had to stop looking outside the window because I was making myself ill by trying to control too much because like it doesn't go according to any like rules of traffic that we know of. So <laughs> I actually had to stop looking out the window and just look inside the car and not pay attention because I was getting motion sick. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen videos of traffic in Vietnam and in India, like people like people like posting that on on Instagram sometimes, and it's just I I know it's controlled chaos, but like I live in a land of traffic rules, and so I don't think I would be able to survive. I yeah. think the closest for me would be China, where you know traffic rules are just suggestions, and so are parking rules. <laughs> I I don't think I could deal. I would have to be a rich person and hire a driver, you know, um, <laughs> because I would like my anxiety would be, uh, you know, off the off, uh, train, whatever. Off the, um, off the off the charts. Off the charts. That's the word. I was like, <laughs> roof, roof. Um, no, but yeah. So and I know I that's one of the things I liked about Japan was because they had great public transportation that i as a foreigner could figure out pretty easily uh but that's actually yeah. impressive because mm -hmm. japan's public transit grid that map if you don't know how to read maps is frightening i used to make these maps for work when i used to work as an urban planner so i can read them but like i had to be the guide for my friends because you take a look at that giant transit map and it's like where are we supposed to go <laughs> so um Han, do you think this um, the White Tiger is good pop? Absolutely. I think, as you pointed out many times, this would probably be a good way to understand your own country by shining a light on the inequities in another country that we claim to be so backwards and different. But definitely, there are a lot of parallels. The writing and the acting is fantastic. I cared about all of them, even if I found their actions reprehensible. Well, so, except for yeah. the stork and the and the mongoose, those two can <laughs> suck it. They can, except for the landlords. 
Eat yeah, the, rich. <laughs> the, the really, really rich who didn't have any sort of like sympathize, uh, sympathetic aspects to them. Sure, they can just die. Uh, <laughs> they can just die by the side of the road for all I care. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think this is good pop. It's um, even though the middle kind of lagged a little for me, I thought, you know, yeah, like you said, the acting was really great. Um, I love that the new Oscar bait is Eat the Rich movies because I think that is that is what we need right now is more people to at least become aware of how um like how how society has failed us, you know? And you know, shining a light on people that are often invisible in our society. Yeah. I I I can't wait. I hope more people watch this. I don't know how many people will listen to our <laughs> a podcast but at the same time just like every little bit helps as far as like shining a light on this movie i hope that its oscar nomination gets people to watch it and i hope this filmmaker gets to do more uh it's it's such a worthwhile movie and like you said you know it may not be considered like an american movie or it's may be seen as an international movie but i feel like it's so accessible also a lot of english is spoken in it by the way like yeah. half of it Maybe even more English than Minari. I mean, a lot uh, <laughs> of Indians speak English because of, yet again, because of Western imperialism and colonialism. So. Colonialism. Yay. <laughs> I mean, that's why Vietnamese has an alphabet. Colonialism. So, you know, I'm not saying it's all, it, that's a good thing, but it just just means that you can watch it without reading subtitles throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, the White Tiger is now available to stream on Netflix. So let us know what you thought. Um, you can engage with us on Twitter at Good Pop Club. Um, Han, if people want to find out your thoughts online, where can they go? I am on Twitter at Anonymous. And you can find me on Twitter at Marvin Yue. Once again, I want to thank the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian hosted podcasts, um, for um, letting us be a part of their network. You can find our fellow Potluck Pods by going to the website Podcast Potluck. Dot com, and that will complete our 2021 Oscars movie catch-up. Um, this past few weeks, we watched Minari, we watched um, Over the Moon, we watched The White Tiger, and Nomadland. That's right. Yeah. We did a pretty good job. <laughs> As always, good luck to all the Asians in the Oscars this weekend. We're Go rooting Asian. for you. Um, and yeah, we'll be back next week for our... I guess, Oscars edition of Do We Want This, our monthly news roundup. Um, but until then, Han, I hope you have a good recovery from your COVID um, vaccine shot. Uh, hopefully the symptoms are mild and um, the pain is minimal. Thank you and happy vaccination to everybody. Yeah, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. We're still here, and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Phoba, just to name a few stories. 
You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.